UX Podcast Episode 154. Hello and welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Royal Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. And we're balancing business, technology, and people every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden, with listeners in 165 countries around the world, from Germany to Canada. Nice. I, I like that you've started mentioning countries there. there. There are a lot. There are over 200. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, we have an interview today with Joe McLeod. For some of you, maybe a household name, but he has done a, an amazing amount of work in different spaces uh, in mobile. And we get to interview him in Sweden, of all places. So we, we do a lot of face-to-face -face interviews with people who we didn't think we would, but he's actually been living here now for six months. And I realized that Sweden is becoming the UX capital of the world. <laughs> you want it to be. Somebody has to say it and it will come true. Exactly, uh, if we uh, keep on saying it. So if you want to come to the UX capital of the world, Stockholm, uh, then uh, you want to come out, come along to uh, From Business to Buttons, the, the conference uh, that's taking place on April 27, bringing speakers like uh, some of them we've had on the show, uh, Donald Litshaw. There's also Eric Meyer, Jamie Levy. Who else is there? Mike Montero. Alan Cooper. And Alan Cooper as well. Uh, so nice to touch base with some of those, and some of them will interview for the first time again. And, and in Stockholm, Sweden. <laughs> The UX capital <laughs> of the world, as Paris now declared it. <laughs> and if you want to buy a ticket for that, of course, you'll have to use the discount code UXPODCAST, one word, uh, for a 10% discount. But anyway, today, though, we're, we're, we're talking to Joe McLeod. And what Joe's talking to us about, or going to discuss with us, um, is closure experiences. Closure experience, what Joe defines this as is the satisfactory conclusion to a product or service relationship, each party feeling satisfied with the completed transaction. It being fair, just conclusion without negative consequence. So, so it's kind closure of as in closure of a relationship, that's usually uh, how you use it, I guess. Or, or, or death or the end of something, yeah. Oh yeah, true. Cl closure closure mm. comes mm. at the end. Mm. So yeah, we're talking about how things come to an end and whether it should. <laughs> No, I, I just, since we're just jumping in, uh, I mean, I'd like you to start, just start off because you've done so many amazing things. You worked at Nokia, uh, you have produced mobile services for pregnant women in Africa. That was that blew my mind, sort of. And now you're, you're doing this thing on closure experiences, but tell us sort of your background, how you got into this industry and, and what your passions are. I guess my first degree was in graphics. So I, re I very much enjoyed doing, doing that. And um, I used to do loads of posters for like comedy people and album covers and you know great big clubs and stuff like that that was great fun but it didn't really I didn't really have that appetite then and when the the web came along and you were sort of designing these three-dimensional interfaces that was super exciting because doing posters you're looking at something in a two-dimensional realm has meaning and emotion in it but then mm -hmm. being able to make that interactive that was something special so I, I really got excited about getting into interaction design and then then I went to the Royal College done an interaction design course there it was called CRD at the time computer related design this was like 99 2000 okay. and uh, 
was sort of really interested in mobile. And this was way before it was colour screens. It was tiny. This is, this is when it was Nokia's with, with, mm. uh, with, with Snake. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, but then there was this emotional meaning behind these things, which uh, was changing society. We, you know, that mobile uh, presence thing, the triangulation of mm. uh, location. And then I started developing um, these sort of stalker services for, the, <laughs> for mobile which were based on... Uh, any horror film is based on the absence of real information. So that's what makes horror compelling, that you go to a place and you don't know what's mm. happening. Mm. So with um, mobile and knowing where someone is, providing contextual information which is sinister to that individual at that moment makes it very scary and an extraordinary experience for them. Mm. Mm. Maybe a negative one, however. <laughs> but that was really exciting. So I was I was really into mobile, and um, I started doing bits for Orange afterwards. And um, that was right at the dot com boom crash times. I worked for a, uh, a company called Oyster Partners at the time, which then turned into LBI many years ago later. Oh, that's a consultancy firm. That's that's international these days. Yeah, it? yeah, it's massive. LBI, one of the mm. biggest. Um, mm. Uh, I was doing mobile stuff for them. Done a massive mobile games party thing in 2000. We had incredible dot-com budget for that. Mm, it's like no. a quarter of a million quid we spent on <laughs> yeah, the party. I think, dot I think, com I think, we've, been, yes. I think we've been part of that yeah, 2000 yeah. time as well. Crazy, when the budgets crazy. had an extra zero for some reason. Mm. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then le I, I left there when it crashed out, which I was actually happy to go and I moved really into mobile then. And then... Um, Orange, a couple of other small things, and, and then ended up at Nokia and done five years at Nokia. That was the, in the boom times of Nokia as mm. well, because they were making, I mean, they had 51, 2% market share. Yeah. Well, until, until the iPhone came out, mm. then, yeah, I mean, Nokia was just, yeah, so dominant. The entire globally, even yeah. in the Far East, I mean, it was just Nokia everywhere. It's a, it was amazing. And, and um, so were you there when the iPhone came out? Yeah, and yeah. Um, we were doing stuff which was like, you know, comparable in concept, but mm. the, the, really the appetite of the senior management was they were super conservative. They wanted to do fold phones till they blew yeah. the whole world yeah. to bits with fold phones. Yeah. I mm. mean, as, as, a, as a Symbian user, then, because of course here in Ericsson, Symbian was, yeah. was something that was, mm. was quite large most of the tech side of things. Um, then, yeah, I mean, I was very familiar with what Nokia were doing and... Uh, and the 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 way the way that we all thought, well, now the iPhone thing won't really take over all this because this is mm. actually you know already mm. so much further ahead yeah. in many many ways. <clears throat> well, they, they, there was a real arrogance in the management. They were saying that <clears throat> that's a niche product. Uh, the the iPhone's a niche product. They also thought BlackBerry was a niche product. And uh, mm -hmm. but you know, with that level of arrogance, it doesn't last very long. And then um, mm. now they, I think, a couple of twenty twelve, three billion loss was it. So you go, I know, you, you die pretty quick when you die. And, yeah. you know, Apple's really excited at the moment. Mm. And I'm sure death will come to all empires, won't mm. it? So we can reflect on that. Yeah. Well, that's a nice segue into, yeah. into death. <laughs> <laughs> well, not just, not just death, but... <laughs> yeah, so the, so come, come back to why I ended up on this. Um, yeah. In around 2004, I think I had a couple of experiences that made me think about this in a sort of compelling way I guess I'd done some teaching and I was I set that sort of cliche project for for um the students of like waste and rubbish and go off what can we do about it and uh, they all went off in their groups 
and then they come back excitedly and present more sort of rubbish for the world and mm -hmm. we sort of end up with the only vocabulary we've got is more rubbish and uh, another thing that happened was um, I at the time I signed up for a service which is the sort of this avatar voice recognition thing on uh, Orange at the time, the mobile phone company, and then you'd, you'd ring up and get your voice messages. When people oh, used to leave. Yeah, no, I remember, yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, so I signed up mm. for that and mm. uh, I was excitedly had mm. this vision of me having a PA, mm. like a avatar type PA. And the reality is that you just couldn't use it when you were out and about. It just no. didn't hear you at all. And, and mm. I, it, I, it just ended up shouting at me all the time. Sorry, <laughs> I don't understand you. Sorry, I don't understand you. And I ended up experiencing such hatred for it. that I, it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been satisfactory to just end the service in a sort of like, oh, I'd like to turn this off now and not pay for it anymore. I really wanted satisfaction, like an emotional satisfaction of killing it or something. bury it, yeah. Burying it, yeah. <laughs> or like, I, I wanted to throttle it yeah. until its horrible mm. avatar eyes died. So then <laughs> around that time, I started to pull this together that we have no vocabulary for endings. We have so much rich emotional vocabulary for beginners and nothing for endings. And that was the start of the question around closure experiences. So anyway, roll forward a few years, and it's always been in the background, this whole closure experiences thing. I did, I wrote a, a document for a big company about it at the time, and that was well received, but didn't really dig into the essence and the background and the history so much. <clears throat> it was quite a sort of surface thing. And then um, I was at Us Too for many years, and it, started, it just keeps coming up, the repeated sort of examples of like lack of endings well give and us some examples about it because i mean we're talking about closure experience now of, of in, a, in a in a digital realm yeah yeah so just give us a couple of examples so the amount of times we get pushed to share for example if i'm going through my interface with my phone mm. i'm in the camera mode take a picture share mm. and then i get into gallery and i'm editing share mm. and i get mm. you know i've saved into gallery and i'm in gallery browsing share mm. and it, it's then in our social media when we look at the news, like the amount of share buttons in different share platforms. So like you might have in a news thing, you might have 10, for example, opportunities of different providers to share your content, share this bit of news, share, share, share everywhere. Mm. And the ability for us to control that after we've shared it is so, so limited. And it is so difficult for us to unravel sharing and control sharing and unshare for example mm. so we end up with mm. mechanisms or like um very inadequate mechanisms like the european directive on um right to be forgotten mm. which puts expectations on providers to control content that's been shared like facebook or twitter or someone like that mm. But even in Facebook's T's and C's, they clearly acknowledge that they have no control over this stuff once it goes outside of their borders. And it is even hard to control inside their systems. Well, that's, a, that's a really good point. Because, I mean, the whole, <laughs> I suppose the whole fabric of the internet is based on eternity. Yes. You know, we're, mm. we're, if we talk technically, it'd be technically about um, URIs or resource locators, that um, the, whole, the whole specification for that says that you should never have a, four, a page not found, a 404. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You should always redirect to tell people how to continue, mm. how things then live on. And even if you go back as far as the birth of internet 
the with the internet project the which the american army investigated the very purpose of that the fundamentals was this can't be destroyed mm. by a nuclear weapon it's mirrored in other places yeah. so on every level we've got intolerance of endings or just denial of endings mm. or, the, or the or yeah the desire to be eternal mm. it, yeah it's totally. built into the fabric yeah. every single level yeah and it, and it is there's a so there's a whole cultural piece uh, a whole uh, psychological piece um in closure experiences around like we have a natural repulsion against death as, as you can imagine there's a, a book by um Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. And in mm. that, he points out that we all have a repulsion of death. He called it terror management theory, where in a subconscious way, we're all trying to cheat the longevity of uh, the, the inevitability, I guess, of death. So mm-hmm. we, so we uh, buy things, we produce things, we make things that are um, going to outlive us. Mm. So you could argue that on, on one level that's like having kids, but on other levels it's things that we make and we think are going to outlive us. So mm. I'm making a book, for example, or like somebody might make a bit of sculpture or you might have a passionate view mm. about some sort of right in your country. Mm-hmm. And well, it's, it's, um, it's loss aversion as well, isn't it? Of course, not just, not just death. I mean, we've got that, uh, we've got that inbuilt mechanism uh, to, to, to not want to lose things yeah whether it's lose money mm. on the stock exchange or whether it's kind of you know to lose your wallet or or lose a loved one um, a- absolutely and, that, and that's often stronger than the desire to to make things sometimes so you, mm. you're repelled by death more than you are to gain in other areas yeah especially when you've when you've, when you've got when something is existing you've got something <laughs> than than the 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 fear of losing the thing you've got and now i'm touching my tablet as if that's the most important you know thing well, to me just now, that's, but it was, that's the thing you touch most during the day You'd hope. <laughs> the, the weird thing about this, I was t- we're talking at the. I've done the sustainability thing a few weeks ago, and um, it's interesting this this break we have emotionally about uh, endings and beginnings. Mm. We're all very diverse, uh, very um, conscious of minute sort of emotional triggers in mm. our beginnings of a customer experience, whether it be a product or a service or mm. a digital thing, and we we can navigate all sorts of complexities in that and. Uh, the offboarding of stuff we just totally forget. So, f- mm. for example, going back to tablets, phones, and laptops, mm. you'll find that you've probably got a few generations of phones in drawers. Phones mm. live in drawers after they yep. die, mm. and laptops live or on kids, shelves. Or kids play, or kids play yeah. boxes. Yes, or mm. or kids play with their dead phones yeah. in boxes. Because mm. we there's such complicated things to unravel on so many levels. You, I mean, as soon as you start thinking about like, if I get rid of this, what's happening to the data? Mm. If I get rid of this, what happens to the complex electronics inside the metals that are need recycling? Mm. Or what happens to all of that? Who does dismantle that? And there's all sorts of questions around that. I think uh, uh, there's. Um, I, I think I may have mentioned this example before, but in Swedish, I think there's, it's a lovely um, example that, that heightens the connection to phones. That in the 90s, the the nickname for for a mobile phone um, was the Swedish for teddy bear. Oh, that's so, nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. that I think is actually an yeah. excellent way of, of yeah. giving the example that that's yeah. a thing that you you cuddle and hold and and basically have with yeah. you all times. You really really feel anxious and 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 you know distraught if you are separated from it or lose contact with that teddy bear. Um, and it's it and that then, like you say, it creates the need for so many 
offboarding processes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with you, that you kind of strength of connection. You do need to add emotion into these mm. offboarding things. Mm. The other, the, the big reason why we need to do that is because we've got so many bad. It, the impact on so much of our life now, in the bigger sense, things with climate change, mm. privacy in social networks, and, and things like mis-selling in um, financial services, we can attribute to not really dealing with an off-boarding experience very coherently. So when we're dealing with climate change, we've been talking about that since the, that, that uh, intergovernmental panel was made mm. in 1988. Yeah. It's like, like 30, 40 years ago. Mm. What have we done since? We mm. are now even questioning mm. the need for it. Because we have no vocabulary to challenge it or just to say, mm. no, let's stop or let's, let's unravel this. We, mm. um, and the, sa the same with digital and the same, same with services, the justice that we don't see in, in, um, in banking and the service industry where people get away with outrageous things that you can attribute to not resolving things at the end. That mm. injustice, but man, we do a good starting experience. We can sell sorts of stuff, and we can have all of these stories around new starts and technology and stuff like that. All of these onboarding. Things. Well, I mean, how how do you how do you deal with this from a, from a company point of view? You've you've got all the focus on onboarding, on sales, yeah, uh, on customer acquisition, mm. um, on on repeating the customer cycle, or or on not letting them drop off it, yeah, because um, yeah, acquisition costs are, are one of those metrics that you know every single company that has a customer base follows, and yeah, yeah, yeah. cost of acquisition, um, you know, growth of of, of customer base, mm. and when you see things dropping, offboarding, I mean, yeah. that's that's a bad thing. It's it's painted as a bad. Thing in, in every single consumer organization. And, and they deal with it so bad, uh, so awfully when you do offboard. A good example is the gym industry, right? Everyone signs up for a gym in like January. Well, not everyone, but like mm. you'd sign up for a gym mm. in January, and a lot of people start to really drop off by like February, March. Yeah. It takes like six to eight weeks for people mm. to start uh, dropping. The, to such a degree that the turnover in that industry is 30 to 50%. So the best gym in the gym industry does 30% turnover. Mm. So what they've tried to do is stop people leaving by putting the, putting mechanisms in place to like uh, legal contracts mm. or poor um, mm. poor sales cycle uh, not sales cycle but um, subscription models so you can you're not paying over a certain period of time but a lot of things to stop people leaving mm. instead if you approached it and said like everyone's going to leave uh, the best we can ever do is thirty percent then. I'm going to create the best leaving experience the gym industry's ever had. Mm. And I'm probably in competition with, let's say, four other gyms in the area. So let's say one individual starts off in one gym mm. and um, your gym, and you're going to do the best leaving experience. And they, they leave after like a few months. And you go like, thanks for coming. Like, and you give them the best leaving, mm. offboarding, closure experience you can do. They then go to the next gym, and that gym's like, they, they spend another couple of months there and leave there mm. and they give them a horrible thing and they trap them in a contract and they do the same again. All the time that person's going, they've got a really bad example and they're going to tell their friends about this great gym which gives mm. great uh, offboarding and closure mm. experience. Mm. Within four years, you're going to have the best reputation in the industry mm. in your area. Mm. So there's loads of benefits to having that offboarding, really put an effort into it because people leave, people leave your company. If you're in denial of people leaving mm. Mm. and you're not dealing with that, then you really shouldn't be having a business because someone's going to come along mm. with the acknowledgement that 
well, people leave, so I'm going to make that part really good. But you oh. said that was sort of the key, what you just said just there, in four years. I mean, yeah. people don't plan that far ahead well, in no. business. Well, no, you know, life, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's life. Yeah. And, mm. and, and it's, it's, things happen. And, mm. um, you know, we, you can't change. I'm, I'm going to say you can't change. You can change, but I'm going to say can't change people's behavior en masse um, from, a, from an individual gym. Then you're not going to uh, alter that behavior you know, in, in the whole marketplace in a short space of time and it's mm. very difficult full stop so you've got to accept reality and reality is like you say yeah. 35 percent are Pe- gonna people leave. give up yeah, yeah. and th- if you look at the car industry as well so kaya cars comes comes to market in was 2007 with a seven-year warranty they say to everyone because previous to that everyone's going we've got very good materials look at our ball bearings aren't they good or do you remember those door mm. ads of the vault i mean who the hell buys a car based on how a mm. door shuts <laughs> so it, like that, that's the model that was the previous model it's mm. like good quality materials these will mm. last and th- most of the time they gave them a three-year warranty mm. and then what like do it says car only last three years so it's, that's like see you later we don't care we're going after another new customer yeah so kaya comes along seven-year warranty now people find it hard to talk about um, anything beyond five years. As a yeah. human, it's hard to sort of think beyond that. That's why you get yeah. that cliche question at a, a job interview or your, or your financial advisor. Mm. What are you going to do in five years? So when you start saying this car will last you seven years, you're talking about end of life, mm. uh, like a thing, a, an event that you can't perceive mm. seven years away. But equally, Kaya then have got this event in the future where you're going to get together with this person they're happy, hopefully, with their car. You've been a good company to them, and you're already in the market for a new car. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a really clever, sensible acknowledgement of um, product death and the potential of getting a really new, clear acquisition? Mm. Seems a no-brainer to me. Mm. And you really, you really have to think long-term, though. And yeah. you need to argue <coughs> for that. So is it? Is it profit or ethics that's driving this? What is the call to arms and what do designers have to do to get into this Well, I, I think just going back to Kaya Cars, if you look at the business model they, with that, mm. since they introduced it in 2007, they have 1.4 market share. They're now at 3.4 market share. Mm. They've doubled their market share in, over the period of introducing seven-year warranty. And the seven-year warranty is the, the thing that people come to their company for now. Mm. But in, t- in terms of like... Going back to your, your question about the um, other aspects, what's the point of introducing it, for example, in mm. digital? Yeah. Um, at the moment, we've got this share culture of like, share, 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 share. When things go wrong after you've shared something, whether it's something personal or something, you have very little control over that. You've given up a lot of the control that or acknowledgement that it's yours in T's and C's. You've given... And a piece of uh, maybe a, a bad picture or something to someone, and they've then gone off with it. And then inevitably, maybe not inevitably, but one in one in eleven people in uh, women in the U.S. have been uh, threatened or has experienced revenge porn, mm. and have had images of them either put online or threatened to put online. And at that point, they have very they have to often go to court with their own money to get that stuff removed. There's only recently been legislation put in place to deal with revenge porn specifically. And some of the people that are doing it are getting away with murder for ages Mm -hmm. before that because we haven't got this vocabulary about 
resolving an offboarding or e even empowering the individual from each side of the customer life cycle. So you empower the individual to share, 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 share. But then when the individual comes back and says, please help me, I want to unshare, Apple runs, all of these other companies run because they had their, mm. maybe their cloud service was hacked. But if you look in the small print, that's not their problem anymore if it's your identity being. So you're making stuff easy, but you're not presenting the outcome of, the potential outcomes of that uh, action that they're taking. The, the sorry, the <coughs> you're not presenting the actual outcomes that could potentially happen based on yes, your sharing exactly. process. You're making it too easy to share. You're reducing yeah. that friction. Yeah, but you're making it too easy. And so, and we we often mm. just don't put those mechanisms mm. or those interfaces mm. in place. And what mm. we should be looking at is what what is an interface for mm. unsharing that image that we've spent probably months, mm. if not years, resolving. N those nitty gritty details mm. of mm. how to share but you've got I mean this is uh, the thing that we uh, really problematic here is that we've got so many digital services now that are that are basing their entire essence on engagement mm. so we've got the race for engagement yeah, like yeah you've got to click we've got we've got LinkedIn auto playing videos mm. because because they're counting it as a play without you even pressing a button because yeah. it increases their engagement figures which makes the stock market happy because they're mm. a public organization now in, and they're floated and mm. so on you know it, you've got all this kind of drive for clicking and pressing and engaging that goes completely against closure it does but there is um there's quite a bit of evidence to say people are changing their behavior because they're repulsed by the amount of exposure they're getting on mm. maybe a personal level so if you look at facebook the the sharing between 2014 and 2015 fell 5.5 percent, mm. mm. but underneath that personal sharing, so like look at us here or yeah. look at my dinner or something yeah. like that yeah. uh, instead of news, uh, fell 21 percent. Yeah, at the ah. same time, the increase in messaging apps like WhatsApp mm. and Facebook Messenger and Snapchat that grew 25 percent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what we're seeing is like. I want more control back of what who I'm sharing stuff mm -hmm. with, what I'm doing, and a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've read this as well. The argument of, of, mm. of um, or the explanation behind Snapchat's growth yeah. is that it's it's seen as more of a closed room. Mm. Um, you know, it, things auto expire. It gets shared with just yeah. the people you yeah. you know you're, oh, exactly. you're connected to, and, yeah, yeah. and there's no public on mm. on Snapchat. And and the more uh, it, I mean, take that in a different direction. That same argument. If you look at VPN usage, it's like one in four people in like sort of the West are starting to use yeah. VPNs to protect their identity and to place themselves in different. I mean, I I shouldn't say that, but like I'm I've been using a VPN because I'm now in Sweden watching mm. BBC News. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> Cut that. I use a, I use a VPN every day. Yeah, yeah. I use, I use yeah. a VPN. Mm. Um, well, actually, one of the things mm. coming out of Sweden was mm. that they, if you looked at Sweden's VPN usage, you would think that they're all ghosts watching Netflix. Mm, yeah. But the thing is, the thing is though, with just VPNs, it doesn't actually mask you. It doesn't, it doesn't ha it's a placebo, really. You think it kind of stops you from being tracked. But, but the, the organizations now who are good at doing cross-device tracking, oh, yeah. it doesn't matter because they're, they're so good at picking up the fingerprints. Mm. You can go through a VPN and they still go, well, actually, we, we know that's still you. You still don't need but, to block the trackers. You saw there's, I mean, there's so much tracking going on anyway. Well, you can't, but mm. things, it's, it's almost impossible because every single time mm. you collect a, a web page mm. from a web mm. server, you give a huge amount of information to it yeah. and you, you can't 
block all of that because they require you, you know, you're, you're sending a request. It's almost a cold war between the consumer mm. and the provider. So yeah. We, yeah. we've been given so much information away as individuals mm. and we're starting to become more and more aware that this... And what we've created is a load of casual criminals who are like, because I, sh mm. I shouldn't be using a VPN mm. that hides my identity because mm. it allows me to watch mm. things in the country which I'm meant to pay a licence for, fee mm. for. You know, you're doing these casual sort of mm. small level mm. uh, criminal activities. Exactly, yeah. But so yeah, coming back to the, to um, closure, if we, if we don't start having a more honest ending and allowing people to have more control over their um, their content, their identity, and and a full sort of conclusion to that story mm. of consumption, I think we're going to be in a lot have a lot more difficult problems. And yet, even if you look at the um, more recently evidence coming out from research of saying um, self-esteem in, in young adults in the UK is going down and particularly more aggressively going mm. down in, in, in women. So we're exposing ourselves to this sort of, uh, it's almost like a flamidahide epidemic of mm. um, through digital mm. and self-esteem and that mental mm. health thing we're really undermining. Yeah. If you, and another thing on that, do you, do you know, when do you think the first um, diagnosis, proper medical diagnosis, was of um, hoarding, digital hoarding. Digital hoarding. Medical diagnosis of digital hoarding. Yeah. Wow. Is, that, is that actually a thing that they, they do do that <laughs> subcategorization of, of digital hoarding? Yeah, and surprisingly, it was super, like only in 2015, so less than two, in September 2015, uh, okay. so less than two years ago, yeah. uh, digital hoarding was diagnosed. And I think that's suspiciously, we need to grapple with digital behavior and mental health in that to really start dealing with some of the consequences mm. of, of um well then again everything's in, everything's built up to i think now with like photo services now you've got google photos you've got your icloud and so on they're all designed from the bottom up to make sure you don't lose anything mm. yeah but it's a, a matter of like co consciously what we consume at one end of the customer life cycle and we don't have these these uh, the vocabulary to off-board or resolve that stuff at the other end of the customer life cycle. Mm. So, for example, if you look at um, Victor Mein Schoenberg's in his book, Delete, have you ever read that? No. no. So he, he's, he talks about, like, um, cost of storage and how now we've gone, it's been so, so, so cheap to store content that when we take a photograph, or, like, I take a few of the image, you know, thinking it mm. might be blurry mm. or something mm. like that. So I take a few images... And the cost is so cheap now that he said that the three seconds it takes to choose has to become too expensive for people to use. Mm. So it's easier for me not to even bother editing my photos down because it's so cheap to just store all yeah. of the imagery. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that brings me to a question. Like maybe I've watched too much Black Mirror, but uh, never mind. Um, can, do, we, do we ultimately need closure anymore? Because given given how what we talked about now, we've talked about the kind of the rapid um, move towards um, you know um, archiving on a, yeah, on, yeah, a, on yeah. a scale that mankind has never ever experienced, and mm. everything is driving us towards not 
finishing things off, not finishing. And we've we we, we data storage is becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. We're taking more and more photos. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to probably quite rapidly get to the point where we can maybe take a backup of people, and and then you maybe even get to the point where you could have a, a virtual representation of a yeah, loved yeah, one, yeah. a lost relative or so on after they've died. Yes, which is very very good at interacting with you. So, do we need closure in the future? The difference between closure, this is, I think, the difference, is that we could, as you point out, store all of this stuff, or we could edit it down and work out what's worth storing. So, with the description, you, you're talking the difference between archiving antiques mm. in somewhere special which will look after them or mm. like the difference between an enormous landfill where we don't give a monkey about anything yeah. in it it's just storing everything forever a good example of that is on the app store they have if you look on the app store they've got um out of the 23 different categories you get on the app store in the genre lists when you do a search you only really search the top 300 odd mm. so the search actually doesn't go deep mm. very much and so if you're outside of that top 300, you're not really searched for very coherently. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, a company called Adjust, a research company, they'd done some work on this and said that like 80% on the, they call them zombie apps, these apps that don't get searched, Adjust do. Mm. And uh, they reckon 80% of apps on the app store are zombie apps. Now, Apple came back to this, like uh, I think last year, and they started cutting a lot of the, the dead apps. Some of the apps hadn't been touched since 2000. And yeah. Like fifteen or something, mm. and uh, but they only cleared twenty percent out. So really, if you look <laughs> at the app store, it's you you have got some nice things in there. But if you go deeper and deeper into it, you're looking at this vast wasteland of digital assets that mm. are no good to anyone. They're not of a high quality. They haven't got. Mm. They haven't been looked after. And there's maybe not many people on them. And we're creating this landscape of rubbish mm. that we could co clean out a lot more coherently otherwise we're going to get leave we use these lingering assets that will undermine ourselves in our future and if you talk about it on a personal level and the um the assets that we create as we grow up become teenagers and you mm. they're they're stored super robustly for everyone to look at forever mm. and ever mm. is that waste or is that coherent archiving mm. i think it's probably a massive landscape of mm undermining waste yeah. oh it'd be a whole different and a whole second show but i was thinking about the way that of course through through surfacing items in your uh, digital archive um you shape your memories of the past because it used to be the case that you you, me you remembered things mm. through remembering them whereas now it's kind of like facebook throws up a memory from four years ago mm. And, and primes you and triggers you to remember that thing and over time you then it's that you remember not the original memory because because you remember the most recent time you've thought of something of course so yeah. it, you, your whole memory has mm. been has been framed by mm. services spitting out memories to you from the archive mm. I, I think there's an interesting analogy if you an analogy between the when the printing press was invented and now there's lo loads of interesting things mm. one of the things that came about when the printing press was invented was the ageism started previously to the printing press invented it, people would go to the oldest person in the village as a wise sage to chat to them about what, what happened then or what, how did this work in the past mm. but the printing press coming along and started documenting everything mm. so everyone could start 
but after they start messed around with Bibles for a bit, they started making more instruction type learned manuals. Old people then started getting pushed back down the pecking order of of interest. And you think about what's happening now, the way we archive absolutely everything. The level of quality maybe is getting undermined of like archiving. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I would love for us to end on a piece of advice for the UX designers out there listening, because I'm in complete agreement with the problem here, and I'm trying to figure out, well, what do we as product managers and UXers, yeah. what do we have to do to change this? Because I think we're in, in sort of the best position. We have an understanding of humans, the human yes. problems, yeah, yeah. and we could do more, but where do we start? How do we find the arguments to actually get buy-in for this? So, so firstly... I know how hard it is to sell this sort of thing in. It's a super mm. difficult thing to put up against mm. the business people in your organizations. It's worth exampling the gym thing I talked about earlier. Uh, if you're talking about endings, then that's a massive step forward because mm. you've all experienced emotional endings in the past. We've all broken up with people or known loved ones who've died. So we, we've got those emotional triggers in. We just need to start pushing them into how we design. So... You're halfway there already. Mm. Now, start thinking about what the offboarding experience is of your product or service. One thing I, I think is a, is a simple thing to explain is, and a, a compelling exercise to do, I call it five by five. So if you can take your product and honestly say that it's going to be exactly the same thing it is now in five years, then so you do, I'm going to see how much... I, I need to put um, a little bit of effort into the project, a project to think about things in five years out. So 5% of your project time on five years out, then you'll start asking real honest questions mm. about endings and closure and offboarding. So it seems like closure can, can be a lot of different things. So it's closure when you actually end the relationship in, in something as, I mean, acute as, as death. But it could also be uh, a closure of single point micro interactions where you actually have some, you take, make a decision, you perhaps buy something and you have regrets and you, you want to go back on that decision. And the interface or the service or whatever allows you to do that without any questions asked. I was thinking of uh, return policies in in Sweden where you have 14-day return policy, no questions asked, whatever you buy across the country. <coughs> I, don't, I don't know how that translates to different countries, but the reason for that, of course, is that people make mistakes. People don't always understand the outcome of the choice they're making, so you need to give them some time to actually go back and redo that or ha have regrets. Yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, this is an example of how these this different... Um, well, there's different strengths of bonds. I mean, uh, closure is, is the end of a relationship. So the example that Joe gave with um, share buttons and the example you're giving about returning products, mm. they're, they're, um, they're weaker bonds. You've had a very, very short relationship. So closure in those situations, uh, it doesn't need to be as... It, it, can be very, it can be much more simple in those situations because it's not a complex relationship. But if you've been using a service for, for, for several years... Mm. And at the at, at the end of it, at the end of that period, you don't need to use it anymore, or don't want to use it anymore for whatever reason. The relationship has come to an end. Then, then the closure you need in those situations will be quite quite different 
to unsharing an item from Facebook. Well, I think some of the point he's making, because it's not necessarily a short-term relationship, it could be like with the gym memberships. Uh, it's just that this specific uh, interaction was short-lived. But it could be that you've had a long-term relationship, but just this specific product, you wanted to return it and, and, and you didn't like it. But you keep talking about it because you got such a nice exit. But that's more of an exit than a closure. I, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah. But I'm just saying that we've got, you know, there's different depths of relationships. So yeah. you have to. You still need to get closure, and you still need to mm. end it in a good way. That's 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 good for both of you. And exactly like you say, you don't want negative consequences just because you brought a product product back, and you, yeah. you brought the product back maybe because it was the wrong size. Mm. I mean, it doesn't doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be because it was rubbish. Right, and you may um, buy there again, and in many years to come, just because you got that good experience of of returning it. Yeah, but um, but then I don't. Th- but then uh, you, what we just talked about there isn't closure, because if if you're still going to have a relationship with that organisation, you're going to buy another t- shirt from it or another item of clothing. Then then that may be a it's an end of a transaction, um, one transaction, but not the end of the relationship. No, I absolutely agree. So yeah. so I think we've got to remember that there are lots of levels to yeah. closure and what what we're talking about you know are we talking about offboarding as a customer completely this is the end of my relationship with this brand or mm. this organization or is it is it micro closure is it closure of something less less deep True. um that that we're, we're talking about um but I I I I really like this because I think it makes you it makes me think about lots of of, of economic and um, and you know business issues to do with this. That you know, or, like I mentioned during the interviews, organisations are completely built up for for add-on sales and for closing yeah. clo- closing closing <laughs> sales um, and 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 keeping you know, a customer retention and minimising the cost of 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 um, you know, customer mm. acquisition or um, you know, all these different metrics and stats and. That's not always, you know. That's not always how life is. Not always how we are. And I think we've seen a uh, definitely seen a trend here in Sweden with um, um, no with companies moving away from having like twelve month contracts, twenty four month contracts. Yeah. Um, because they've started to see the 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 business value in flexibility. That you know people can you can you can you can, people feel more safe. With a with a one month's notice yeah, on a contract, exactly. rolling contracts, it doesn't feel as stressful as mm. as, as you know. You don't have that um, anguish and that kind of cloud hanging over you for two years mm. when you realise that now nah, this actually didn't really work out as I thought it would. Mm. Um, it's nice, it exactly what you said there. Exactly what you said is it's called closing the deal. And many companies look at that when you close the deal, that's the end of the relationship because then you've got your money. But really, it, you need to look at the outcome far far away way beyond that mm. but i think from mm. from a us point of view we're going to have a lot easier time um getting closure for you know the 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 weaker bonds for the you know the the regret type situations or mm. the kind of undo type situations i think that's going to be a lot easier for us to get included in websites products and services um the 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 bigger closures you know the mm. for example like if you if you want to delete your uber account yeah you know that kind of closure um, is going to be a lot more difficult to get buy-in. It is actually. You're you're right because because you're swimming upstream against you know the, the 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 sales and business fabric of a lot of these organisations. Plus, people hate to think about the end of relationships. That's not what they're about. <laughs> yeah. Which is one of the core things of Joe's talk yeah. and, and and the book that yeah. we've we've um, moved away from closure because the 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 accelerated pace of change that we've gone through now. Mm. 
Um, and, you know, as, as, I, as I kind of a bit um, cheekily brought up, you know, maybe we don't need closure in the future. Yes, that's an interesting point as well. Mm. But um, I think we do just now. <laughs> I think we need to put more time into... Yeah. Um, it would be more open and honest about how life mm. is and how um, we should help people instead of mm. making it awkward mm. for people to get closure. Yeah. Not having closure and big data and all the possibilities there is a whole other, whole other show. <laughs> so, show notes, links from this episode, available at... Da, da, da. UX, uxpodcast.com <laughs> and if you're not already a subscriber then please add us to wherever you are listening to us right now and if you are then just tell a friend uh, about the show I guess thank you for taking the time to listen remember to keep moving see you on the other side <laughs>